Notice with me, if you will, beginning in verse 1. Mark writes, And when Jesus had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose. He immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed and they all glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Well, I think we can join that chorus and agree what authority Jesus has shown us. Why don't you join me as we pray and we'll unpack the nature of this authority. Father in heaven, I'm asking now that you would come and by the power of your spirit, show us the glory of your absolute authority found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Make much of him now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder what you see as your greatest need. How, how would you answer that question? What, what is your greatest need this hour? Now, there's a couple ways you can go about this. On the one hand, there's probably no word more misused more in the English language than the word need. How many of you children in the room have ever been in the store with mom and dad and when you saw that toy you really, really wanted, how many of you kids ever said, gee, Mom, it sure would be an untold blessing for me to get that toy? <laughs> I need it! How many of you students in the room, upon seeing the commercial for the iPhone, said, man, Dad, that really would be an unnecessary luxury for me to get that phone? <laughs> if you do have kids like that, please teach me your ways. I need it. We abuse that word, that's, that's clear. But I don't want to make light of the fact that there are in this room, I trust, countless with real, acute, felt needs. Some of you today are here because you need a miracle. You need a miracle in your miserable marriage. You need a miracle for your wayward, wild child. Your debilitating depression has you here longing for something that medicine has not somehow, some way been able to help you. Your all-absorbing anxiety has you gripped and you're here hoping that God will do what only He can do. 
Your unending unemployment has you at your wits end and you are wondering, God, I need a miracle. And so you've come to church. You've come to the miracle worker, kind of like this paralytic. You've shown up and you are here and, and you're wondering, this miracle worker healed that guy. Why isn't he healing me? This preacher of his, he's talking about everything but what I really need. He keeps telling me all these other things that I need to think about, all these other needs, and I'm trying to help you understand. Talk to my felt need. This is my problem. I need this kind of miracle. And if that's you, if you are privately harboring cynical doubts in your soul wondering, the Jesus of the New Testament doesn't feel like the Jesus I experience today. This wonderful miracle worker is not working a miracle for me. If that's you, I want to invite you today to just come and join me at Jesus' feet. I want to invite you to come and see what this man who so desperately needed a miracle saw. For in this text there was one a lot like you, a paralytic in great need of a mighty miracle. And I want you to notice that when he came to Jesus, what Jesus did was not what he nor any in that room expected. For on that moment, and we'll come to the details in just a moment, when he came for the miracle of healing, Jesus responded with a mightier miracle that has left that man that room, that nation, and the world since that day shocked, awed, and amazed. For the purpose of this story, the heart behind these miracles is simply this. Would you see this day that the mightiest miracle you need is forgiveness? Amen. Now, I don't want that to just wash over you too quickly. I don't want it to go in one ear and out the other too quickly. Look with me, if you will, beginning in verse 1. What's happening? Jesus, who in chapter 1, if you can recall, was so popular that crowds were flocking to him wherever he went. He did some fantastic healings and exorcisms, and it caused him to have to leave the city and go into the countryside. But evidently, in verse 1, he has decided to somehow, someway, quietly return to his headquarters, Capernaum. But word got out, as you might expect. And so in verse 1 it says, after some days he comes back there, and it was reported that he was home, and so the people start a flocking. In verse 2 it says, they were gathered together so that there was no room in this house. The house of which they speak, it's not terribly clear, but most assume it was probably Peter's house, maybe where his mother-in-law was. But we're not sure. He's in this home and the crowds are so packed in that there's no way to get in. And it says in verse 2 that he was preaching to these people. Just let that hit you. The Word of God preaching the Word of God to the people of God. Astounding to have heard that Word. And in verse 3, notice what happens. There was a man, a paralytic, one who was unable to move. We're not precisely sure why, but it is safely assumed that he was paralyzed from birth, but we're not sure. Nevertheless, he was utterly and completely unable to go. But there were four men, the text says, that brought this man to Jesus. But they had a problem. As they came near the house, they couldn't get in. 
The room's so packed, it says it's spilling out into the doorway. There's no way to get in through this crowd. Now, like you, you might have just given up. The way you might go to a restaurant and you see the line out the door and you're like, okay, we're not stopping there, moving on. But it says that these guys were industrious. They were determined. They weren't going to let a crowd stop them. So it says in verse 4, they removed the roof above him. Those houses in that day were typically one story, and the roof was made with all these big long beams. It was, you know, trees that they'd lay across the top of the roof. On top of the roof, they would put all this thatch, all this like shrubbery or whatnot. And then on top of the shrubbery, they'd put a layer of mud and dirt. And then often on top of even that, they'd sometimes put tiles. And that was the way they did a roof. So these men go up this presumably outside stairwell, which was not uncommon, either a stairwell or a ladder, leading to the roof of this house. And as they come up on this roof, it says they find the spot where Jesus was, evidently, and they begin to dig. Luke tells us that they removed the tiles. Mark leaves out that detail. They dig through the roof. Now, I just want you to imagine for a moment what's happening in this scenario. I just did a service this week. That was the most distracting service I've ever done in my life. I have never had more distractions in my life than this service. All the pastors from this campus were there. You can go ask any of them to know I'm not exaggerating. I'll spare the details. You can come find me afterwards. But there's one thing that didn't happen in that service. Nobody started to dig through the ceiling above me. <laughs> Jesus is in this packed house, and all of a sudden, dirt starts to fall from the ceiling. It's falling, I trust, on the scribes' heads, on all that are gathered, and all of a sudden daylight starts to peek through. And this wasn't a little pinhole of daylight. It says the hole was evidently large enough that a paralyzed man on a mat was lowered through the ceiling directly in front of our Lord. Now just let that hit you. Astounding what's transpiring in this story. And Jesus in that way that only he might respond, instead of responding with frustration, shock, or disgust like I might, it says he saw their faith. I trust he did so with a smile on his face as these folks came down through the ceiling. And what does he say to this paralyzed man lowered from the ceiling? You would expect him in that moment to have said, Son, you're healed. But what does the text say? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that might strike you as cold, calloused, cold-hearted, maybe even cruel. This man had real needs. He came for that miracle, and Jesus responds and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. I wonder... Is Jesus cold, cruel, calloused? Is that what's going on here? And of course, we would gladly attest with one accord that is surely not the case. For what I want you to see is in that moment, Jesus proclaimed a truth that you must grip this day. The mightiest miracle you need this hour is forgiveness. Warren Wearsby, a preacher, uh, died a couple years back. He pastored the Moody Church in Chicago. He memorably remarked that Jesus' greatest miracle was forgiveness. He said it met the greatest need. He said it cost the greatest price. He said it gave the greatest blessing. He concluded 
forgiveness had the most lasting results. And I heartily agree that if you can wrap your mind around this soul-sustaining truth that forgiveness really is the most mighty miracle you need this hour, then I trust you will by faith receive the one who alone can do this miracle. I want you to see with me three reasons why the mightiest miracle you need this day is the forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark this down firstly. You need to understand from this text that you have no need more critical than this. Think with me for a moment about your greatest sense of need. What do you see right now as your greatest need? What would be on your list? Now consider that what you see as your greatest need reveals what you see as your greatest problem. So whatever those needs are, are betraying something. They are revealing to you and to me what we perceive as our greatest issue, our greatest problem. And do you find So often in life, we have this nearsighted, short-sighted, myopic view of our problems. We see two feet in front of us and we lack perspective. We don't see the greater problem more long-term. I want to invite you to put on the corrective lens of God's Word this morning and see your problems the way Jesus saw them. See your need the way Jesus saw it. For Jesus in this text saw the paralyzed man's most critical need. And did you notice that evidently Jesus regarded his most critical need not as physical healing, but as spiritual healing? His most critical problem was not physical paralysis, It was evidently, manifestly, spiritual paralysis, which can again sound cold, cruel, calloused, if you don't realize the depth of this man's spiritual paralysis. He who was born uh, physically paralyzed, it was but a shadow of the deeper problem. He and we, all of us this day, are born, the scripture says, spiritually paralyzed, so to speak. We are born in original sin, which means you are born with a heart inclined against your maker. You don't have to teach a child how to sin. They are sinners inherently. Nobody taught the one-year-olds in the classroom downstairs how to bite. It is something that comes naturally to them. We are hardwired towards this. We are born spiritually paralyzed, and we grow up living a life of spiritual paralysis. The Bible calls this, uh, for lack of a better word, Our sin nature is so great that we are totally unable to honor God. We have a complete and utter inability to ever willfully do what God has called us to do. We are depraved, the scripture says. We are at nature children of wrath, the Bible says, like the rest of mankind. Spiritual paralysis is the great need of the hour. It is your most critical need this day. And it is so critical because the scripture teaches that you who are born spiritually paralyzed... You who live a life of spiritual paralysis will die of this paralysis and you will be forever cast into darkness. Have you ever considered that sin doesn't lead you to hell? It's unforgiven sin that leads you to hell? 
Heaven is populated with sinners. And hell will be populated with unforgiven sinners. Which is why our most critical need of the hour is that one would come and provide the true spiritual healing we need. Jesus, who saw his most critical need, he came and he met his most critical need. When he came from the ceiling in desperate need of a miracle, Jesus responds, Son, your sins are forgiven. Let all five of those words pierce you like arrows. Son, a word of authority and tenderness all at once. He is speaking with all authority on heaven and earth and as a good loving father saying, Son, listen to me. Your sins. Yours. This isn't a blanket statement. It's not a gross generalization. He is speaking to you individually, not your family, merely you. You personally are forgiven. Your sins not that particular sin, not the one you remembered to confess in your prayer, not the one you did yesterday, but not the one tomorrow. Your sins, past, present, future, all wiped clean. Your sins all completely are forgiven. Not will be, not were, not might be, are. It is with complete surety my friends, with great tenderness and personal affection and with completeness and with precision, he says, your sins are forgiven. Amen. Forgiven. Aphthemi. It means to separate, to put it so far away. It's as far as the east is from the west. Your sins are gone. They have been paid. They are no, no more. And so I wonder, do you see your most critical need the way Jesus does? Do you see your most critical problem this hour as spiritual paralysis, that you are a slave to sin? And do you see your most critical need this hour is for Jesus to come and do what only He can do to declare with full authority, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven? Firstly, mark it down. And let it be written on your heart. You have no need more critical. But there is a second reason why we who are hurting in need of a miracle must recognize that the mightiest miracle we need is forgiveness. Secondly, note that you have no need more costly. Just notice what transpires beginning in verse 6. There's a crowd here that doesn't like what they've heard. It says in verse 6 that there are some scribes. These were the religious leaders of the day. It says they were seated means they probably had a place of honor. They probably took the good spot. Shocking. And it says they were questioning in their hearts. That's an idiom. It's an expression that basically means they were privately, silently thinking to themselves, why does this man speak like this? This is blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. Now mark with me for a moment. Were the scribes wrong? Partly. They got something right. Indeed, no man, no one can forgive sins but God alone. But they wrongly concluded that Jesus was not God and thus accused him of blasphemy. And I want you to see what the Pharisees and scribes saw, and I don't want you to miss what the Pharisees and scribes missed. Come back with me now to the text. I want you to see this. See what they saw. 
Only God can forgive sins. They knew this to be true, that God must do this. But they missed something. They missed a critical problem. They missed that Jesus was the one who could do this. Just consider with me the high cost of sins being forgiven. All the scribes, all the men of that day and women would have known this very truth. That the cost, the wage, so to speak, of sin is death. Adam and Eve, the minute they sin, a blood sacrifice occurs. An animal is slain by God himself. It closed them. We see a promise made that one day one is going to come and completely, finally, fully forgive you of your sins. But we don't know who that person is. And the rest of the story of the Bible is basically this picture of who that one is to come. All these different characters you see throughout the Bible are all involved with one crazy, arcane system called the sacrificial system. Isn't it wild when you read the Old Testament and you think how different religion was then as it is today? You see this endless blood being poured out, all these sacrifices being made, and you're wondering, that just seems backwards, archaic, but it was a glorious foreshadowing of what would one day come. Millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of animals were slain. The blood, their blood was drunk into the soil of the earth. Foreshadowing the one who would one day come and pay the infinite, full, final sacrifice. The cost of redemption was paid alone by Jesus Christ, who is our redemption. For Jesus would one day come and make the final sacrifice, which he had not done yet. But this is why I draw this to your attention. It was this miracle that turned the scribes and Pharisees against him. It was this miracle that made them say, blasphemy. It was this miracle that would eventually cost him his life. For in that moment, Jesus declared in a just shy of crystal clear way, I am God. For God indeed alone has the power, the authority to forgive sins. I have that authority. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to logically therefore conclude that I am God himself. Jesus paid the highest price. When on Calvary's cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When the sins of the world were placed squarely on his shoulders and in his dying breath cried out, It is finished. Sealing once and for all. The sacrifice was finally made. The promise made as early as Genesis had at last been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Your greatest need this hour is not what you think. You have no need more costly than the forgiveness of your sins. You cannot pay it off. You cannot work it off. You cannot earn it. You cannot clean up your act enough. You must simply by faith turn your eyes to the Lamb who was slain and get ready to sing with that cosmic chorus forevermore. Worthy is that Lamb who was slain to receive power, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Would you learn with me from the scribes? See what they saw. Only God forgives sins. 
Don't miss what they missed. Jesus paid it all. You have no need more critical. Dear church, you have no need more costly. Thirdly and finally, hear it, I pray. You have no need more consequential. For notice, if you will, beginning in verse 8, some of you skeptics are thinking, yeah, preacher, that's all well and good, but Jesus healed the guy. He didn't just save him from his sins. He didn't just forgive him. He healed him. Why hasn't he healed me? I had two people I heard today in our church go to the hospital today from an apparent heart attack. Several of you have reached out to me in recent weeks with a significantly serious cancer diagnosis. Some of you are holding back the tears this hour from the grief over your marriage, over your wayward child. And you're wondering, why won't Jesus heal me? Please don't miss this. Perhaps the most critical words in this text are found in these verses I'm about to show you. For Jesus does heal this man, but notice why he does it. Just join me, if you will, in verse 8. It says, Jesus was perceiving in his spirit that they questioned themselves. In other words, Jesus was proving in that instant he's God. He could read their minds. That is something only God can do. His omniscience was on display. And he responds to the scribes and Pharisees, Why do you question these things in your hearts? And then he asks a strange question, which admittedly might have tricked you up. Tripped you up. You may think, well, I'm not sure how to answer this. Jesus says, which one of these is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or take up your bed and walk? How would you answer that? You know, I think we need to answer it with Jesus. That technically speaking, it would be easier to say... Your sins are forgiven, because how are you going to prove it? I could say that right now. I could be like a Roman Catholic priest who says you're absolved, and you don't know any better. But if I tried to do that same thing and say, rise paralytic and walk, the proof is in the pudding. Either you're going to walk or not. Jesus makes clear, if you don't believe I have the authority to forgive I'm going to show you another authority that is actually easier than this one. And I want you to see it as proof that I have the authority I claim. For notice those five significant, critical, crucial words we find in chapter 2 and verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise. And that paralytic did as you might expect. He rose. Did you miss that? Jesus, in other words, basically said, the reason I healed this guy was to point to something more important. This healing was less consequential than my first one. I only healed him as a pointer, as a signal of a greater power I had. Jesus' healing ministry, in other words, and we see this throughout the Gospels, his healing ministry signaled at least, in my judgment, three significant things about him. 
it signaled, it pointed to who he is. It showed him to be a sovereign God in control of all creation. It signaled what he was like. He was a sympathetic, loving, compassionate God. Almost every time he heals a man, it says he had compassion on him when he heals he or her. It signals not only who he is and what he's like, it also pointed to what he came to do. For when Jesus would heal a man, he was foreshadowing what he would one day do, and that is make all things new. A wonderful, sweet assurance of who he is. And some of you are thinking, I need that assurance. Why don't I have that? Do you know how much that would help my faith pastor if he would heal? I need it. Why am I not getting the same assurance that crowd got? Let me offer four very simple pastoral words to you. I want to affirm a few things. First, he is able. And so we pray. You ought to pray for healing. For our God is a great physician. And he has worked miracles. He is able. He, he, he can. He He's done this. The Bible is replete with examples of him doing this. History attests. Many of you attest to his miraculous healing power. He can. He has. Praise be to God, one day he will when he makes all things new. But an important word you must grip with me is that he often doesn't. Rather, he promises suffering, sorrow, Weeping, it indeed may tarry for the night, but there's going to be joy in the morning. We are not promised healing. And if any man ever claims that the reason you're not healed is because your faith has been insufficient, he is a false prophet, a liar from hell. It is demonic. His healing was a signal of his greater, mightier miracle. He healed physically to illustrate his sole authority to heal spiritually, eternally. My friends, if you long for that sign, you need a sign. You are desperately wanting some sweet assurance that God can do this. Remember that He has left a greater symbol, a sign for you, so infinitely greater, pointing to a much mightier miracle than healing you of your disease. He did this in the incarnation of Jesus. What a fantastic symbol for us, proving he is who he says he is, that Jesus is no mere man, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. He gave you a second symbol in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, proving not only who he is, proving what he's like. He is a sympathetic great high priest who gladly, joyfully, for the joy that was set before him, the scripture says, he endured the cross for you. He drunk the wrath of God for you. He quenched it for you. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me for you? What a symbol showing his kindness towards you. What a symbol showing his power for you. And his resurrection is a third and final great abiding symbol, an assuring work for you that Jesus did what he said he came to do. That he was mightily and triumphantly resurrected from the dead, proving once and for all that he was the one God promised. He alone had the power and the authority to forgive sins. That his sacrifice was indeed final for what animal has been raised from the dead? Jesus is alive. 
the mightiest miracle you need this day is forgiveness. You have no need more critical. No need more costly. You really do have no need more consequential. Imagine if Jesus had done what you had wanted him to do. Imagine if Jesus had just healed the man physically as he came down from the ceiling and stopped there. That man would have begun to decay. In just a matter of years, he would have died. And he would have been dead the last 2,000 years with no hope. Which is why we must conclude without sounding like we're just hoping this is true. Do you not see it the way Jesus saw it? That the most consequential need you have is that forgiveness that only He can bring. For your body is decaying. The grass really does wither. The flowers fade. And my body and yours is a testimony to this truth. But there is a word that will abide forever. His promise is sure that you may die, but in Christ you will live forevermore. Praise be to God that the mightiest miracle He wrought is forgiveness. And so let me conclude then by drawing your mind and heart to just one word that I skipped over. And it was probably conspicuous to many of you. Did you notice that word faith I skipped? The way you get it. The way you receive it. Faith. Faith is, as demonstrated by these men, it is seeing yourself for what you really are, paralyzed in utter need of a miracle. Faith is seeing Christ for who He is. He is sovereign, has full authority. It is seeing Christ to be the way He says He is, sympathetic, a great high priest, a most compassionate God. It is seeing that He came to do what He said He came to do. To save. And it is coming to Him. And in your utter inability saying, I can't help myself. Oh God, would you grant this by Your grace to me. And so this day, I pray for those of you that know that you know that you know that you need a miracle. And the mightiest miracle you need this day is for the life-changing forgiveness wrought by the precious, precious blood of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you in a moment when we sing, you come forward. There will be pastors down here who long to pray with you. You cry out in the silence of your seat, Oh God, I am a sinner. I see my paralysis, my inability. Save me. But before I pray, may I give one final pastoral word to each of us. I do not believe this is the point of the story, but I do think it's an important implication. Did you notice that that paralyzed man came to Jesus under the loving arms of four friends? Did you miss that? Did you notice the faith of those men? Did you miss that? I was so deeply convicted this week as I spent countless hours preparing a sermon, recognizing how little time I spend with people who need this miracle. That I will gladly feed people but I am prone to see the spiritually paralyzed and walk right past them. Did you notice these men with determination 
grabbed all four corners of that mat and brought the man to Jesus? Have you forgotten that you who were once spiritually paralyzed were carried by somebody to Jesus? It might have been your grandmother, it might have been your mother, it might have been a co-worker, it might have been somebody you can't even recall, but somebody was used of God to bring you to God. And so my final pastoral word to us, to me, if anybody, is that we would heed the implication of these four men who brought the paralyzed man to the Lord and be motivated by the glorious, soul-searching truth of verse 12. They were amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Do you want to see a miracle here? Do you want to see and savor and experience the joy, the glory of verse 12? My friends, as we go from this church this day, you're going to be near a lot of spiritually paralyzed. Remember who brought you here and go put your hand on that mat and together let's bring them to Jesus who alone has the authority to say, Son, your sins are forgiven. Why don't you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed as we go to the Lord, I'm going to ask that you silently search your own soul. Ask God to show you anew the grace He once had on you. Perhaps you need to confess anew how unable you are, how able He is, how grateful you are for the one that brought you to Him, how mighty His miracle of forgiveness is. Confess that you have seen other needs as more critical, more costly, more consequential. Just lay that before the Lord. And if you know that you have not experienced this mightiest of miracles, Gerald is going to lead us in a song of response. And as we sing of this great high priest before whose throne we can approach with confidence, my call to you is to come. You can come down here and pray if you'd like. I'm down here. Other pastors are down here. It would be our greatest of privileges to come talk with you. You can find us after the service if you'd like as well. Come this day and experience the mightiest of all miracles, forgiveness wrought by Jesus Christ. Spirit of God, do this, I pray. Seal this message to the hearts of your people and open our eyes to behold anew the glory of Jesus Christ, who alone can say with full authority, your sins are forgiven. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty and matchless name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet?